Hey everybody, welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. This is episode number 121. Tonight we are looking at 1990, the year in baseball and music. This is our field guide to 1990. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Gabe Estel. I'm here with my co-hosts Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going, fellas? All right. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Glad to be here. So listen, I wanted something that encapsulates baseball and music. Um, so I took some liberties here and uh, the results may vary, but I am going to share in verse a little bit about what we're going to just talk about in this episode. Okay. Yeah. Set to the tune, set to the tune of one of the most popular singles of 1990. Okay. Randy Myers, Jimmy Key, Kelly Gruber, and the last year in old Comiskey. Flavor Flav, the Reds on the cover of SI Magazine, Dave Mustaine in stonewashed jeans, picture of a beauty queen. Pre-Roids, Sammy Sosa, Brett Michaels' hair, Chris Robinson, dance on air. They had style, they had grace. Paula Abdul gave good face. Larkin, Charlton, Rob Dibble too. Chili Davis, we love you. Ladies with an attitude, fellows that were in the mood. Don't just stand there. Let's get to it. Strike a pose. Just Shinsu chew it. 1990. Oh, I nailed it. Oh. <laughs> I tried. I tried. He nailed it. Oh, nice. Well nice. done, sir. It's like Madonna and Q-Tip Thank had you. a baby, man. Fuck. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, so here we are, folks. Um, Talking about 1990, and, and this was a really good year for baseball, and I think a really good year for music, too. I think also a really important year for music. So we'll get to that, uh, the music portion here a little bit. We're going to start with the baseball um, um, 1990. And um, Jonathan, do you want to go ahead and kick us off? We're, I think we're just going to kind of kick around yeah. the proverbial baseball hacky sack, if you will, and uh, talk about some of our, our biggest takeaways from 1990 and some of our our biggest memories, because if we could set some context for everybody, you know, the three of us are definitely like in the throes of major baseball fandom and baseball card collecting in 1990. I think it's safe to say. Right. I mean, definitely all, all three of us. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm eating. If, if I'm not in school, I'm thinking about baseball or <laughs> screw that. I'm in school. I'm thinking about baseball. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so if I'm not sleeping, I'm thinking about baseball in 1990. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, looking back at it, I I, I think, though, I I probably started to transition a a little bit out of less in the card collecting and more of like the actually just like watching, sitting down and watching baseball. And like, so I I started Mm -hmm. to engage with baseball a little bit differently. Um, Not, I mean, I still collected baseball cards, but when I was looking through my cards for 1990 cards, I noticed there weren't nearly as many as I had for, say, 88, 89. Uh, okay. So I noticed that as as a little bit of a difference overall for that year. How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I was yeah. still chasing like Griffey's and Frank Thomas's. Those were like two super hot cards right then. the uh, The nineteen ninety tops Thomas and Griffey were pretty highly sought after on the streets back then. Do you guys remember the it. Thomas, the Frank Thomas error cards for tops? I didn't. Yeah, remember the no those. name. Yeah, the no-name card. This yeah. is the 1990 card, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's been it's... going for six figures now. Yeah, so yeah I, I, I knew they were double check. Rare. I need to double check my set. Then, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that, that was prime junk wax era. And so, mm-hmm. Tops, Donruss had loads of error cards in both of those sets. It was yeah. the most printed ever set of Donruss, I think. I forget what the number is, but it's like billions of cards or something crazy. That that was the I, the, the red yeah. Donruss? Yeah, the red. red with the, the Jackson Pollock painting on the side yeah, of it. It's like there. splatter. Like the, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um I, I you know, gets though I do have a lot of cards from nineteen ninety. I, I I mean I don't know if I quantify it compared to the eighties, but like um I got two wax boxes that year, so that probably that increased the volume of cards mm-hmm. I had from 1990. Obviously, I got a wax box of tops and I got a wax box of score, so I've got a lot of tops and a lot of score. If you all remember, if if 
at home if you're remembering the 1990 tops kind of look like like they should be on like a trapper keeper or something right yeah yeah, yeah. It's real yeah. thick border different colors border different color borders that didn't match the team colors necessarily no no it was a lot of pinks and purples and greens like and yeah, they're like, not they're the cards reflect a moment in time they're not timeless looking cards by any no means. no 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 but they are colorful <laughs> they are yeah, yeah. no i mean i, I think as as the years wear on, they get more, you know, they just get kitschier and they, they have some um, appeal to them still, I think. Uh, I, I, I did find uh, this Wade Boggs uh, in my collection from the 90 right. Upper Deck uh, that is, it's like a time-lapse uh, mm-hmm. photo of him with four uh, different poses of his swing, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And bonus on the back is, uh, is, is him and Bo, I believe at the All-Star game, that would be. Uh, oh when, yeah, yeah, when Bo hit the dinger, uh, yeah, they're yeah, and, yeah. And, and Wade's uh, waiting for him at home plate. Uh, I'm assuming I remember, I remember seeking out that Wade box card just so because I knew Bo was on the back of it. Wow, so, yeah. That, right, so did you right. w- did you like display it backwards in your binder? <laughs> I, I think I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I think I was trading. Um, there was a kid. Uh, Levi and I have a mutual cousin named Chad. There was a kid down the road from Chad named. Uh, Bill, I know these names mean nothing to the audience, but anyway, he was like, "Hey, dude, Bo Jackson's on the back of this card, man. Do you want this one?" And I, he may have ripped me off. I don't know. You know, I probably, I don't know if I gave him like <laughs> Mark McGuire on the card or something like that. But I was like, "Yeah, dude, I want to." I was in the height of Bo fandom at that time. So I was sure, like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know? Yeah, Bo fever. Um, yeah, so that was great, and 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 ninety was uh, obviously still Bose prime um you know the this is obviously like if, if you say the reds in our lifetime this is the team most people are going to think about right? mm-hmm. 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 And, i mean they won the world series they were they were basically you know one of those they they were in first place the whole season they mm-hmm. started off mm-hmm. i think they started off like i want to say they were eight no to start mm-hmm. and then you know they're their winning their winning percentage was really high. I mean, like the, basically the first two months of the season, they were just rocking, um, and and obviously they kept it going. Actually, but they, they were really, really average the rest of the way. Uh, they, okay. they finished the season fifty eight and fifty nine, but they still managed to go wire to wire. Oh, okay, all right. So yeah, obviously killer started. They started so good. Yeah, yeah, they started yeah, thirty three right. and twelve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they it. just built up such a cushion at the start oh, yeah. of the year. Oh yeah, yeah. Another thing I like about this year, too, guys, and just like maybe it's just the Midwesterner at heart in me. Um, I like the fact that like the the powerhouses of the National League are Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Just like mm-hmm. obviously you're not going to see that in 2024 um, mm-hmm. from from either of those franchises. But like um, you know, that's just it was it was it was a good time when those teams were good. It mm-hmm. felt good, you know. Yeah. Um, for for city smaller cities smaller markets you know uh, but historic teams you know uh, old old school teams uh, that that really when I was watching the the highlight video it reminded me I was watching it with my nine year old you know and I was like hey dude this is when like the Reds and the the Pirates were like really good teams man they were really good to beat they were really tough teams to beat then so uh, which he doesn't he doesn't know them as competitive teams necessarily so. I, I, I was looking at the, speaking of small markets, uh, I was looking yeah. at the payrolls according to Wikipedia for that year. And uh-huh. uh, and I, I don't know how complete or accurate these are, but uh, it says that the Royals had the highest payroll that year. Uh, no kidding. At $24 million, and then uh, followed by some more of the usual suspects. And uh, meanwhile, the White Sox were second to last with a uh, payroll of $10.7 million. <laughs> yeah 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 hey second 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 to last but probably our 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 most famous second place team of all time i would say that team was really good uh, man they were really good and, yeah. and it was it's a special team for me it's it's like it's next to obviously the 05 team it's it's probably the the most important team for me in my lifetime 93 i guess would be up there as well um even though they won they won the division in 93 but like you know, the White Sox, um, you know, obviously very, very strong team, won the division, were expected to go to the World Series in 83, but Baltimore beat them pretty handily. 
And I don't remember that though. You know, I mean, I was, I would have been like four years old, so I don't really have like vivid memories of that. Um, and then after 83, it fell off, you know, pretty bad, like 80, 87, 88, 89 White Sox are awful. Um, so I, you know, that's when I really started following baseball. So it's like, Oh, you know, my favorite team's awful. So it was really, really exciting to be a White Sox fan this year because, you know, you know, like, we're like, whoa, hey, this team's, this team's really doing something, you know? And I mean, we're, we're chasing the best team in baseball in the A's. And, you know, we're, we're actually kind of like, you know, we're, 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 uh, we're playing some really meaningful games here in September, you know? Even yeah. So. Yeah. With the supposed, was, you know, uh, yeah. a, a juggernaut. That yeah. Is the A's. And I mean, you know, you, yeah. I would argue, you know, with, with the 17 divisions, only two of them, it's, it would, you know, much harder to win. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the era when we were growing up, when they had the, the the divisions were formatted like that, you know, you get like third place teams that had like ninety one wins and stuff. You know, I mean, White, White Sox like, had the third most wins of baseball that year, and they yeah, did make the yeah. playoffs. Nuts. So <laughs> I'll, I'll indulge myself here by going through the lineup. But you got Fisk at catcher still, right? So Fisk, um, you know, veteran Fisk still producing. Um, you've got you've got Thomas at first, but later in the year that happens. Um, you know, he comes up in later. Ventura at uh, at third, Scott Fletcher, uh, an underrated contributor in my opinion at second base, Ozzy Guillen at short, Ivan Calderon in left, old one dog Lance Johnson in center, and then a pre-steroid Sammy Sosa in right field, right. Um, and I mean, I was really excited about Sosa. I mean, I, I think at that time, like. We were we were just as excited almost about Sosa as we were about Thomas and, and really Ventura. interesting. Yeah, I, I was. You know, I mean, like I I didn't I, know he was a prospect, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And then um, DH, it looks like it was Dan Pasqua most of the year, who wasn't that bad. Um, and then you know, obviously, we've got the best closer in baseball and Bobby Thickpen, and then our rotation you know, was shaken out nicely because we've got Blackjack McDowell emerging as a star, uh, you know, who would go on to win the Cy Young three years later. Uh, underrated guy, not a household name by any means in like the the pantheon of baseball, but Greg Hibbard was a really good pitcher for a few years. Um, Melito Perez was a really good pitcher for a few years. And then we had another guy named Eric King who, you know, like kind of, it's just, it's just sort of a, such a basic sounding name, but dude, he was, he was 12 and four that year with a 3.28 ERA. Um, and, and then also you had, um, I think it was Alex Fernandez's rookie year as well. So, you know, like, like really good, you know, I mean, we got four guys with double digit wins in the rotation and then a guy that almost had got 60 saves that year in the bullpen. So it was a kick-ass team, man. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I had forgotten how good they were that year. Yeah. Until I, you know, was preparing for the show. And, um, one of the little scenes I remember seeing and that I, the guys I had kind of forgotten about was Steve Lyons. Psycho. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He was like such a fan favorite that there were guys in the stands that had shirts, t-shirts made. And they said, let psycho pitch. And so yeah, the yeah. White Sox did one game. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was the year his pants fell down at third base or not. Because like he, could, he could play – Lions played both corner infield positions. You know, he played some yeah, third yeah. as well. And then he would have been – it would have been him and Carlos Martinez playing first base until obviously, like, Frank Thomas came along and took care of both of those dudes. <laughs> um, but um, – but yeah, and then you know uh, we had a he wasn't getting as many as many innings as Fisk, obviously, because Fisk, despite his age, you know, was still really producing. Fisk, shit, Fisk was forty two in nineteen ninety. Yeah. Jeez, you yeah. know, yeah, man. and I mean, his still, knees were a day off of fit or a year uh, younger than fifty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he still had you know he still played close to one hundred and forty games and had over five hundred plate appearances. You know, so I mean, he's still playing every day. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, Ron Karkovice, who, um, you know, was a really, really good backup catcher and then would become the catcher, um, you know, after Fisk, who Ron Karkovice had a gun. Um, so yeah. And then you even got like a couple of like the guys from like the 83 team, like still hanging around in Ron Kittle, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, obviously we didn't have my beloved Baines that year, but, um, it was still even imagine shit, shit, throw Baines in there, man. You know, we'd, we'd be really good too. So, yeah, it was a fun team, man. It was a really, there's a, um, 
you guys get a chance to watch it, there is it's a fan made, but it's quite good for being fan made. There is a documentary on YouTube about the 1990 White Sox. Um, I, I recommend it. Dang, that's that's hardcore um, for a, a team that didn't yeah. make the playoffs. Yeah, right. Like I said, yeah. it was a lot of love for this team because yeah, yeah. I think, you know, a couple factors, you know, being bad for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the last year in Old Comiskey as well. You know, I mean. That's right. Like, yeah. You know, last year in the Old Park, let's make it count, you know. Um, well, so, so it was, it was a really, really special team for me growing up. What's that? I saw, so I was kind of looking into Comiskey that year, you know, being it was the last year. And mm-hmm. I saw a lot of pictures of the stadium from like the 20s, 30s, 40s. And it was a beautiful mm-hmm. ballpark. And then by oh, the yeah. end, they had like painted all the bricks white and then just like yeah. hand painted Comiskey Park on the outside. It looked so terrible. Yeah. I was like, why? I was like, yeah. why did they make the they like made the park look so cheap by doing what they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just there were crazy. a lot of mistakes made. Yeah, um, you know there were there were a lot of fans that wanted the park to stay and like could it have been you know could it have been renovated and it's just it just it had no amenities whatsoever even by right. even by like yeah, no, would, standards. Yeah, for sure. yeah. I saw that they also but, introduced yeah, they uh, they introduced All the right. black unis that year. They did at the near the end of the year. Yes, they came on. They come on later. They did not start the season with those. Right. Yeah. Most of the year was still played in the uh, the ones they had from like uh, eighty seven to ninety. They only had those for three years, and I, like I don't like those uniforms. Yeah. The ones with the the cursive C that looks like an E. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Not crazy about those. You see that hat pop up every once in a while um, on a fan, uh, and I had that hat. I remember, but um, it's. It's one of those things like it's it's not iconic. You can't like you can't tell. You know what I mean? Like the I most iconic the thing about it is that, is that is that Big Hurt wore it in his rookie card, right? Like there that's the most that's iconic it. thing that, about that, it. That's yeah. that card that that hat or that logo peaked at that moment. Yeah, yes, yep. definitely. It was all downhill from there. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I mean, can talk about the White Sox all, all night, guys. Yeah. So, but we'll 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 go on to a lot of other. There was it was a really good year for baseball. I mean, there was a, a lot of really. Yeah great storylines that happened that year. Obviously we mentioned the Reds unlikely, you know, kind of world series team, um, you know, their last championship and, um, and then the, you know, the A's really just, just being the dominant team all year on the verge of the Uh, dynasty. It sounded like it was just a matter of time before they were crowned. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, they, they went into that season with a lot of confidence rightfully because they had, been to two World Series, won one of them, and just we've talked about this on the podcast before. It was it was basically they were rolling out an all star team every game, you know. Oh, yeah, right? sure. I mean, yep. you look yep. at that lineup, dude. Well, it's and, just like it's the yeah. all star team. Yeah. Well, and then at the yeah. end of the year, taking on Willie McGee, basically like stealing him from the Cardinals. Like right. it was like, oh yeah. fuck, they're going to be unstoppable now, and then they got swept. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had Baines too. They got Baines as well. Oh that year yeah, yeah. Quick, um, quick quick sidebar on willie mcgee there so he ended up winning the nl batting title because he put in enough at bats uh that year in the nl before oh, really? he before he got shipped um yeah, yeah. Uh, to oakland and so as a result there's a, a fun fact that eddie murray actually had the best batting average in the majors that year but he did not win a batting title and this is because mm-hmm. willie mcgee won um, had a higher average before he went to the AL. And then in the AL, right. Willie McGee's batting average uh, was low enough that his combined batting average for the year was less than Eddie Murray. Mm. And so I Eddie see. Murray has the uh, unfortunate distinction of, of having a, the, best rec- the best batting average in the majors without winning a batting title. I see, yeah, because he hit, he hit 335, Willie McGee did, um, in the yep. uh, on the NL, yeah, yep, but he only hit two seventy four for Oakland, so his his right. average for the entire season was three twenty four. Whereas with Murray, it was right. three thirty, and then uh, George Brett that year hit three twenty nine when he won the batting the batting title for the AL. Yeah, and let's talk about that for a second. I mean, obviously, Brett has a bad first half to the point where most people are kind of like writing him off because this is near the end of his career. I mean, it's yeah. 
I think Brett, Brett, Brett retired in like 93, something like that. Mm-hmm. 92, 93. 93. Right. So, so I mean, you know, a lot of people are thinking he might be done at this point. And then he only comes back in the second half and hits 388. So, <laughs> nuts. Just killing it. Yeah. yeah. And that gave him his third batting title in three decades. So, um, yeah. Yeah. See, the only yeah. guy to do that, I think. Three, right, right. Three, I mean, it was like decades. late 70s. You know, it's like I'm not diminishing it or anything. Uh, if you're listening, George, awesome accomplishments across the board. All right. Um, but, uh, you know, like I think the first one was like 78. Then he got the one in 85, I think. And then and then this one in 90. So, yeah, just he owes it all the pine tar. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all know. We all know. Yeah. 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 But yeah, 38, 30, 388. Right. Um, you know, just he's. um just a, a killer second half. And actually, I think gets a pretty good... The Royals were still pretty good at that time, right? I mean, they were competitive, at least, I would think, in 90, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, Let me look up the record uh, for that year. Uh, that is I mean, the Sox won 94 question. games was, and still it, finished in second place. The Royals only won 75 that year. Never mind. All right, yeah. all right. Yeah. It was 89 that they were pretty good. They were second place team in 89, I believe. Yeah, it was um, it was the beginning of some 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 uh, hard years, uh, hard decades right. for the Royals. Right, right. We talk about some other you know some other stats like um, you know obviously like you look at the Cy Young winner that year. It's Bob Welch, who you know had a good career. You know he started playing in the late seventies, um, but yeah, twenty seven wins. I mean, not a lot of people reach that anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it, it still seems like it's a lot now. Like, if, if, if somebody if somebody wins more than, like, if somebody wins more than 20, and if somebody wins more than 25, you're like, holy shit. If somebody wins 27, you're like, hot damn, you know? Obviously, it's you can make the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah right. The, the voters were, like, totally taken by the 27 because it was so close to 30. Like, they just, like, right. couldn't wrap their heads around voting for anybody else because... Of that number, twenty-seven, and and I mean, you know, you, you there's Getz and you were talking about it. There, obviously, you were a big Roger Clemens fan, so to see him, he he should have gotten the Cy Young, probably. I, Cle- I mean, just... <laughs> Bob Welch that year, two point nine WAR. Roger Clemens that year, ten point four WAR. <laughs> <laughs> Clemens ERA was a full run lower. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like Bob Welch did great out there, but it doesn't. The twenty-seven yeah. wins just simply doesn't tell the full story. He gave Bob Welch gave up twenty-six home runs. Roger Clemens gave up seven. You know that sort of thing. Like tells so more of I the story. Remember. Was that like fan voted back then? Or no, no, no. It was no. no it was ba- it's a baseball writers association. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. do you yeah. think Clemens tainted his chances? by the game where he blew up and like was going to kill an umpire no because that was the playoffs and those votes are supposed to happen before the playoffs but yeah that that blow up i'm glad you brought that up levi um you know gabe like you said i was a huge clemens fan at the time i was a huge red sox fan clemens was my favorite player and that was so in the playoffs that year against oakland uh the alcs right um uh, Clemens, it's a day game, so I was in school when it happened, I believe, and uh, Clemens like starts throwing expletives at the ump from the pitcher's mound, like as he's about to throw a pitch, and he gets tossed. And I remember hearing about that later. I was like, "Whoa, that's like the coolest thing ever!" Even though you know the Red Sox <laughs> lost the game, uh, right? And it was. Uh, uh, not as not his most shining moment. Uh, that's for certain. No, uh, everybody just started to realize he was an asshole, and they just wanted to vote for Bob Welch. <laughs> how many pitchers do you see? How many pitchers do you see that used eye black back then? Yeah, right. Or yeah, now, never, right. ever, never. Good like, never. Yeah, he he looked like he was pissed off when he took the mound. Like you're right. Get, yeah, yeah. He was like bulldog <laughs> out there. With all due respect to uh, Greg Maddox. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was something for sure. You know, you have you have Ricky Henderson leading off for your team. Your you know, Ricky Ricky Nelson Henderson. Yes, yes. Uh, you're you're gonna do. You know, you're you're gonna get some wins, right? I mean, yeah. You, when you when you got Ricky Henderson, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, Dave Henderson, you know, so good. Uh, Carney Lansford. So good. Yeah, when you got that that team behind you, like. 
It's not to diminish Bob Welch, who had a great season, but still, I mean, it's... Bob, it's, it's, Bob Welch had some hella run support that year, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Speaking of somebody that was that was putting up numbers, right? We hadn't seen, uh, us being kids at the time, anybody hit 50 home runs, you know? Yeah, because right? nobody did so, it in the 80s. That's the only decade right, it exactly. never happened, right? So everybody, you know, a lot of eyes on Cecil Fielder, you know, who uh, plays in Japan the year before, and, you know, he's kind of... Um, it just, you know, there's, he was just kind of a afterthought in Toronto, you know, when he came into the league, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, this guy comes in and cranks out 51 and 151 homers and 132 RBIs. Ooh. Strikes out a lot, uh, obviously, if you're going to, you know, big guy like that. But still, you know, that, that was, that was exciting. That was, uh, that was a big deal, you know, it to was. get 51, to, for was. somebody to surpass 50. That, that felt huge. That felt just the magnitude of that felt just just really unprecedented for me at that time as a kid. You know, it was even bigger for me because I then dug out his 1986 rookie card that I had. Right. And I was so stoked yeah. to find it. Like, do you remember that feeling when a player just like launches into the stratosphere and you go digging mm-hmm. for his cards and you're like, I have his rookie. Yeah. I have it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was exciting. Yeah, because those were obviously you, you threw those in your commons pile. You know, oh yeah, the, the year before it was a common. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. So that 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 was exciting. Um, and uh, he was uh, he had he put together about. I guess it was really well. I mean, yeah. He you know. He's, he's got three hundred nineteen career homers. The same. The um, same as his son. Him and, and oh, Prince really? ended up at the same number, I believe. Wow. Yeah, uh, which is a fun fun baseball fact. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it's, it's, yeah, he was really just super exciting that year. And um, also, you know, um, any other any other kind of highlights you guys want to share? I mean, the... Um, well, yeah, I'll, I'm going to do my uh, 1990 uh, News from the North Side segment here. Okay. All right. So, 1999, Cubs win the division. Fuck, 1990, right. it's going to be, we're going to be golden. That didn't right. work out. And so uh, the Cubs, I think, finished the season fourth that year. And Oof. so, uh, yeah. yeah, I remember being very disappointed as a fan that year, even though I was only like 10. But uh, so, you know, the one redeeming thing is then, right, like the Cubs get to host the All-Star game. At Wrigley Field, like, wow, that this is going to be freaking awesome. I remember all the hype and the buildup of it. It's still a mm-hmm. killer, iconic logo. If you look at the 1990 Cubs All-Star logo, it's a great logo. But it turned right. out to also be a, a disappointment in, like, one of the worst All-Star games ever. The National League mustered two flipping hits. Uh, there Ouch. was a rain delay in the seventh inning, and CBS had to cut to an episode of Rescue 911 with William Shatner to fill time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the home run derby was played during the day at Wrigley while the wind was blowing in. So, <laughs> are are the heroes of our youth Conseco, Maguire, who all of the big bashing baseball players? Who wins mm-hmm. that home run derby? Ryan Sandberg with two home runs. <laughs> two. <laughs> two. At least it runs. happened at Wrigley, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but, no, it was fitting. I will say one of the one of really the only shining moments of that season as a Cubs fan was. On August 28th, 1990, uh, Sandberg is playing in Houston at the Astrodome, which, as we can remember, and those who don't remember, was a giant freaking huge hole of a stadium that was hard to hit out of. You know what I mean? It was a pitcher's uh, stadium for sure. And Sandberg wasn't even sure if he was going to play that day because he had been vomiting the night before all night. And so he decided to play the game. And so in the top of the fourth, he hit an 0-2 pitch for a home run. While that home run was important, it was his 30th home run of the year. And it was the first time a second baseman had hit 30 home runs in consecutive seasons. 
Wow. The isn't, first, that, isn't that mind-blowing, dude? That's nuts. That is nuts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was in a class by himself. Joe Morgan, like Joe Morgan, was like you know MVP multiple times. Had never done it. No one had ever hit thirty home runs as a second baseman in consecutive seasons. Dude, he ended up hitting pretty good that year. He had forty home runs and a hundred ribbies that year, and he hit three oh six. I would assume Sandberg got some MVP votes. I would guess that year. I don't have that pulled up. But I mean, you had you had Sandberg, Grace, and Dawson, like many years, I guess, around that time, really carrying your team that year. I mean, all three of those guys hit over three hundred. Levi, you know, I mean, Sandberg uh, finished uh, fourth in the MVP voting. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and then you know, Grace obviously high average, Dawson high average. So um, exciting. Nineteen ninety was the. Nineteen ninety marks the first season of Grace as his. Uh, I guess I don't know what you want to call it. His march toward becoming his decade the, uh, of dominance, decade yeah. of hitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most right. hit in the nineties. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you no. also had it was probably like Dwight Smith and Jerome Walton were so exciting the year before, and everybody was so hyped on mm-hmm. those guys, and then they they those, both those guys like fell off a cliff immediately. Oh yeah, yeah you know what yeah, I mean. Like it, the next year, they yeah. Were, yeah. Yep. So yeah, the. That was kind of cool, though, that Samberg got that record, even though the pretty much the rest of the season was like, you know, uh, yeah. a fail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Levi, so, I, yeah, the, all, the All-Star game was so bad that MLB's never let the Cubs host another one. Or the White Sox, for that matter. Like, it hasn't, right, hasn't right. even been to Chicago. <laughs> uh, 2003, yeah, oh, yeah. the White Sox. Yeah, I'm sorry. With the tie. Was that the one with the tie where, like, they – no. That was oh, was it the tie? No, that was, was that Milwaukee. The tie, the tie was oh, in that Milwaukee, was Milwaukee, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah the White yeah. Sox hosted an 0-3. That would have been um, yeah. an all-star yeah. game. Yeah. So. Yeah. The Cubs are due, man. Come on. They've had the renovations. And... Yeah. yeah. Well, and the format the of it wind. now is much better, whereas the Home Run Derby is like a nighttime event and it's hyped and it's on TV. Sure. And yeah. Yeah. I sure. Mean, yeah. Who, who's hosting the Home Run Derby in the. The early afternoon, or yeah, I thought that they only did that in the fifties. You know, when it was like two dudes in an empty stadium. Yeah, like that they recorded. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, uh, the this this was the, also the first year that I remember, uh, like like watching baseball on TV and seeing um, the Red Sox clinch the pennant with Tom Bernanski's catch in the corner uh, in foul territory, where it's like, you weren't sure if he caught it for the final out to clinch. Yeah, yeah, and he caught I mean, there was never like a definitive angle, I don't think, uh, that that showed that he caught it. But I think it's it's fair to assume that he caught it. But as a result, that's like one of my favorite outfields of all time, which was Bernanski. That was against the White Sox. Was it against the White Sox? Yeah. It was against the White Sox, yep. Yeah, um, and um, it puts him in the playoffs October third, nineteen ninety. Okay, yeah, right, yeah. Right yeah. I was so stoked. I just like, I think that that was probably the most excited I had been about a sport I was watching live. Yeah, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah to see that, and then uh, Burks and Greenwell in that outfield with Bernanski. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, outfields of all time. Yeah, really good Red Sox team that year. You it know, was, as it well. Was. It's too, um, yeah, they just ran into the into the A's in the postseason. Yeah, what can you do. So it would have been Red. It would have been Red Sox and A's, uh, and then over the NL Pirates and Reds. Yeah, all 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 great teams um, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and fun teams too. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, and with the with the with the Reds, you know, um, they uh, it, it was Lu, Lupinella too. That was his first year. With the Reds, I believe. Too. Wow, good for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he got it. He got it done. Um, and then, you know, obviously, we. I haven't mentioned yet um, from the Reds. Uh, I, I I remember, obviously, you know, you say nineteen ninety Reds. I, I I think of Larkin, Sabo, and Davis and Panella. But I also got to mention. Uh, we I don't think we can. We clo- we got to close the baseball out uh, with the Nasty Boys, you know, obviously. I mean, and Jose Rijo. Yeah. And Jose Rijo, who was awesome. Your World Series well. MVP. Right, right. So, yeah, the Reds the Reds had some great, great pitching um, that year. Um, and, and then also, you know, I, I, I forgot about this. Ken Griffey was still on the team in 1990. Ken Griffey Sr. 
Griffey Senior. That is, yes. yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was he also traded at some point? Because I thought ninety was when him and Griffey Junior both hit home runs in the same game. Could I'm be. He might have been. That was. Um, yeah, yeah. Did he yeah, get right? To Levi, he was. Yeah. Yes, he got shipped to Seattle. Right, right. Uh, that was call. he retired then the following year in ninety one. So yeah, he that was, was the he first was time, he was a uh, utility guy at this point. I mean he he was done in a full time role by like eighty seven or so. It, it looks like so. Yeah, I wonder but, if that'll be uh, the yeah, only yeah. time father and son hit a home run in a game. Right, they went back right. to back. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was back to back. I think I think they I thought that they went back to back. Confirm that. Yeah. Um, but but so yeah. Eric Davis though that year um, so that that clinching game game four it of the World Series it was okay <laughs> yep sorry um, confirmed confirmed uh, so yeah the, the Reds sweep the World Series like right they they sweep the, yeah. the juggernaut that is Oakland um, yeah. unexpectedly completely yeah. yeah they were just total underdogs. And but in that game four clinching game, they lost two of their big players. So, so it was a good thing that they closed it out, which you know they only won two to one in that um, in that game four uh, right. because they lost Billy Hatcher early in that game, and then Eric Davis mm-hmm. lacerated a kidney right, uh, diving right. for a ball that was essentially the beginning of the downfall of his otherwise like hall of yeah. very good trajectory career. Um, yeah, he, I mean, yeah, just after that, he just, he couldn't sustain it. You know, I mean, like yeah. he, he put together five really good seasons, you know, yeah. like kind of like another guy. It wasn't injury. I don't think it was injury related, but you know, Dave Stewart, you know, we've talked about on this show how like, man, what if Dave Stewart would have kept up the pace mm-hmm. that he was at or started earlier on that pace? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, he'd have, he would have, you know, been in the whole thing. So a crazy yeah, Davis kind of sidebar, a side note in history on the Reds in 1990, um, Pete Rose loses out on the chance of winning a World Series ring as the manager because at the end of 1989 is when all the shit hits the fan and he gets kicked right, out of baseball. Had... And uh... so Lou Pinella gets to walk into that situation with a killer team and wins the right. World Series. So Pinella replaced Rose? Yep. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Twist a- of fate. Another really yeah, another really good uh, good player on that team that year, uh, Mariano Duncan, really really solid yeah. too. He hit, yeah. he hit over three hundred and was a hell of a fielder. Um, so yeah, that was a it was a fun and fun infield, you know, between Duncan Larkin and Sabo. Those guys, yeah. those guys were fun to watch. Um, Todd Benzinger as well. Yeah. So in uh, Jose Rio, so I was looking up his his uh, career stats and. Um, first of all, he, he got to the Reds uh, in a trade uh, uh, from the A's to the Reds, ironically, uh, uh, in, in 87 for Dave Parker. Uh, he was traded ah, for Dave Parker okay. to the Reds. And uh, and then so he wins the World Series MVP in 90. And then he's out of the league f- with injuries from 1996 through 2000. So 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000. The dude still managed to come back for a season and a half with the Reds. Uh, that okay. is like huh. some persistence. Good for him, like to, yeah. to stick with it for four years. Dang, yeah, absolutely, that's something. It is. Wow. Also, yeah, that year, too, one of the um, last, I, last I, baseball. Go ahead, Sorry, I was just going to say one of the last baseball tips I almost forgot about was I was going to mention nine. Uh, well, we'll we'll phrase it like this: seven official no hitters that year, nine unofficial. Um, right, which nine would have been the record. So I think the record's eight, and it's something crazy from like eighteen eighties or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Dead ball uh, era. Yeah, seven seven official no hitters that year, and weird fact: two in one day. Yeah, uh, Dave Stewart June and Fernando, nineteen ninety. Yeah, that, which uh, I think that's super interesting. And what Mike Mike uh, Sosha says that they watched the Dave Stewart one, and then Fernando Fernando Valenzuela said, "Well, we saw one on TV. Now we're going to see one in person." And then <laughs> Fernando, yes, Fernando, calling his calling a shot. 
Yeah. Awesome. And again, too, like that was, that was, um, that was, that was like, I mean, that, that wasn't his prime either. You know what I mean? He was still in the Dodgers before he kind of, you know, he pitched until 97, which I, I kind of forget that he was in the league that long. But, um, you know, 19, by, by the time 90 rolled around, he was, he was certainly serviceable by all means. But, you know, he wasn't, like, it wasn't, for Fernando Manio was long over, you know, at that point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was cool to see him get a, a late season uh, yeah. success like yeah. that. And, then... and um, Dave Steve, good for him. He got the last one that year. And he had, uh, over the previous five years, he had taken no hitters into the ninth four times. And so everybody was just, like, rooting for him to finally close it out and get one and he did he finally he finally got one it was the first one in uh team history blue jays history uh who Uh, southern illinois dave steve southern illinois alum oh yeah good for him oh nice the the white Sox almost had one that year and i think the white Sox gave up like four runs in the ninth or something crazy and yeah it was they they took it to uh took it to the end yeah it was who was that was that I think it was Milito Perez. I think, I think so. Yeah, I don't remember, but yeah, I remember they, yeah. they almost had one as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you're yeah, a it was a good, it was a good stuff. fun year in baseball for sure. Yeah, and it was a good year in music too, guys. Um, you know, we uh, there was a lot of I think important records from that year, uh, and also some killer singles. And there's just it was kind of an interesting time as you know. Uh, one decade, a new decade starts, shall we say? Um, so we'll, we'll we'll transition over over to over to music now. Um, you guys got any um, sort of what are your big takeaways from 1990 in popular music? I'll let you start, Levi. Well, it, so you know, obviously, it's the dawn of a new decade, and sure. so there is still. As far as music is the sound, there's still holdovers from the 80s and the 80s sound, whether that's like glam metal, uh, but new things like house music and, um, you know, country music is about to blow up and become one of the most biggest genres, uh, Mm -hmm. especially as far as money money making for record companies. They're about to start throwing loads of money around. you know, one of the people, you know, first I'll talk about one of the holdovers was uh, from that era of the 80s was Bon Jovi. And in 1990, mm-hmm. Bon Jovi came out with the album Blaze of Glory, which the songs were featured on the movie Young Guns 2. And mm-hmm. how he got involved with that project was because Emilio Estevez wanted to use Wanted Dead or Alive in the movie. And Bon Jovi's like, well, that's a song about like a band on the road. Like the lyrics really don't fit with your Western movie. You know what I mean? He's like, how about I write you a song for the movie? And so he writes Blaze of Glory, which uh, technically that is a Bon Jovi solo album. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not considered, it's not in the discography of Bon Jovi, the band. It's just technically. Is Richie Sambora on the album or no? Did he, did he use other uh, people? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, the, the main big hit, Blaze of Glory, uh, Jeff Beck is the guitarist on that. Huh. And so, funnily enough, though, so Jeff Beck is the guitarist on the album, but the song Blaze of Glory, that main riff, was created by Aldo Nova. Life oh, okay. is just a fantasy. So he, yeah, he creates yeah. that riff. He gives that riff to Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi then teaches it and makes Jeff Beck play it. And so, yeah. Uh, On the song was Jeff Beck on the guitars. uh, Randy Jackson, American Idols, Randy Jackson on bass. uh, John Mellencamp's drummer, Kenny Aronoff on drums. And Uh, Tom Petty's Petty's keyboardist, Ben Montench, is on that. No kidding. Wow. And I knew so, I liked that song yeah, for that, a reason. That can song that, is like... Can, can that band tour, all right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, no wonder that song's a fucking banger. You know let's, what I mean? Let's plug this band into but, uh, AI and let's see what it outputs, right? man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'll, uh, one of the iconic things about that song, uh, 
was the video was shot at what is called the rectory in Moab, Utah. And basically mm-hmm. it's a giant rock formation that's something crazy, like 200 feet wide by about a thousand feet long. And there's been a few famous music videos filmed there. And so basically everything has to be helicoptered onto the top of this cliff. And then the, so like for his, for the blaze of glory video, they make it look like an abandoned drive-in theater on top of a giant cliff in the middle of the desert. Wild. And uh, yeah, uh, another famous it was a great video time when like video that. budgets were just huge. You know what I mean? Oh, They'd insane! Like, oh, we'll, insane. You know, we'll bring yeah. in helicopters, whatever. Yeah. Here's here's a million dollars, rat, to make a video. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah. One of the other famous <laughs> videos shot there was an Australian band called Heaven, who kind of were like a yeah. light rock ACDC, maybe. I don't know what yeah. how they were. They were big out of Australia, and they did a cover that was famous of "Knocking on Heaven's Door," and they recorded it on top mm. of the rectory, the same location as Bon Jovi. But yeah, no, that was a huge song. It was a huge movie. Uh, the music video, you know, all, the the backing band was gigantic. So I were yeah, I definitely, an all star band. I had no that. idea, man. I, uh, I I I put that soundtrack into my my queue so I could listen to it again. I did, but yeah, I had no idea about the band. That's awesome. <laughs> But yeah, and so um, one of the other bands that I was going to touch on was the Allman Brothers. I don't know uh, if mm-hmm. either of you guys had planned on touching on them, but um, 1990 was important for the Allman Brothers because it was their first album in almost 10 years as far as a studio album. Their last studio album was in 1981, and it was called Brothers of the Road. It didn't sell very well. Um, the 80s were hard on the Allman Brothers band. You know, they had... Yeah. Um, they had kind of lost a lot of their credibility in in the um, the music. Uh, I don't know. I guess the in the industry. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah, in the industry. Thank you. And so you know they'd kind of lost. You know they needed to restore the reputation, and they did that with their album Seven Turns. Um, you know, it's not. From that era of that new lineup, which that new lineup was, um, you know, of course you have Greg and Dickey and J-Mo and uh, Butch, but the new guys were uh, Warren Haynes, Alan Woody, and Johnny Neal on keyboards. And so it's a great album. It's not my favorite album from that lineup, but that album is important for, like I said, helping reestablish their, their street cred, restoring their reputation as a good touring band. Because the 80s had kind of, you know, subpar performances had kind of hurt them on, you know, as far as all that goes. And so uh, that was a, that was an important album for them, I think. It, it, yeah, it started off and, that, that five-year run for them. Yeah, yeah was exactly. Seven Turns, yeah, they were hot. Shades of it Two Worlds, like of Where It All Begins. Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They became like... And, a, and sort a, of became the jam band. I'm sorry, I yeah. got you off, man. Yeah. No, yeah, I was going to say what you were doing. Like they, they became one of the top grossing like jam band touring acts from all started right. from that, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was yeah. No, Warren uh, and Allen so critical. And then yeah, the other uh, big music, you know, uh, I have a little lesser one. I'll do. I'll tag on at the end. But my next uh, act is in 1990, the band Delight dropped their album world click and uh they were a new york uh based act um and it was basically like they were america's like mainstream america's first introduction to like house and dance music you know what i mean like i can i had no idea about that genre or anything until all of a sudden mtv mtv plays that video and you know it has Fred Wesley and Maceo Parker from James Brown's band and Bootsy Collins is in it. And then, you know, they were like, it was, I don't know. It was like very uh, well-made music that was also marketable that also Mm -hmm. included hip hop. Cause in the middle of the song is a rap breakdown from Q-Tip for Groove is in the heart. Right. And you got Bootsy um, Collins playing bass on it too. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, and that groove is in the heart. the The main bass line of that song is actually a Herbie Hancock song, 
called Bring Down the Oh, Birds. okay. It's a sample. Okay. So Bootsy's in the video, were, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. And so um, they, they were like one of the first bands I heard that did sampling, like, and kind of, it wasn't just like kitschy, like, oh, hey, we're going to sample this. They kind of made it their own thing as well. And they, uh, you know, it was one of my first introductions also at the start of 1990 with them and that video was like the whole retro revival thing. You know what I mean? They had a, a 60s, right. 70s punk thing going. And uh, that, I, that was an important start to that whole thing because the 90s then later became all about, you know, 70s revival. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. and then Which the was... last the last music thing I'll touch about. I had first started uh, country music was about to get huge, and it was about to become a giant money making machine for all the record companies, and no one else besides Garth Brooks could we probably say was one of the catalysts of that. And in 1990, his album No Fences came out, which was his second album, but it features almost all of his biggest hits, which are Friends in Low Places. The Thunder Rolls, Unanswered Prayers, also features a song by Warren Haynes, who co-wrote Two of a Kind, Working on a Full House. Right. Yes. That, that which album is sold... Which is, 18, which is a banger. <laughs> yeah. That album sold 18 million copies. Nuts. So, yeah. Uh, country music was officially, you know, we can make a lot of money off country music, is what they realized. And so that became, yeah. you know, then the, the course for about the next decade. Yeah, gave them, gave them uh, you know, their biggest star ever, you know, country music, just like uh, one of your first, one of your first, I mean, like, obviously you always had, you know, you had people like Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson, you know, in decades before being household names, but like this gave country music like its first big pop star, you know, that just transcended yeah. country music yeah. even. Um, if you don't mind me gets taking the baton for a second, because I've got, I think, a, a relevant point. Um, I was looking at, at some country charts as well from that year, Levi, and it's it's still a real. There's a lot of really good country albums that came out that year. Um, I would say that, like, if you were just looking, if you isolate 1990, and even though Garth Brooks, you know, it would it would propel him to superstardom. If you look at the charts, I think a lot of people would probably think that Clint Black was going to be nearly as big as Garth Brooks because, like, Clint Black's albums. It came. The first one came out in '89, and the other one came out in '90. They, they ruled. Like Garth ended up selling more, but Clint's albums, like, are are you know weeks on end were number one that year as well. He had two of them yeah. that yeah. year that had both that had spent uh, time at the top of the charts. Mm -hmm. So you know, it um, obviously he didn't become. He still became a star, but he didn't become like the household name that Garth Brooks is. You know, where people like even the don't listen to country music know who Garth Brooks is. I don't know if that's necessarily totally true for Clint Black, maybe. But um, I think if you were to look at it, you know, in isolation of that yeah. year, um, it, you know, I think, I think a lot of people probably would have thought that Clint Black was headed on the same trajectory. Didn't happen for sure. Necessarily. He had a great right. career, but yeah. And that killing time's the great and like, well, actually killing time in his second one too is really good as well. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was big for country and also I'll, I'll talk about rap as well, because I think that 1990 is really the year that rap broke, like that rap became a mainstream thing. You know what I mean? Like you had UMTV raps and you had a lot of tons of great rap records in the eighties, but like until MC Hammer dropped, um, you know, please hammer don't hurt him in the early part of 1990, you didn't really have like kids listening to rap. You know what I mean? Like kids in the suburbs, at least listening to rap right. kids in small towns listen, sure. like us listening to rap. MC hammer changed all that, you know, I mean, granted, like maybe the songs over his whole career aren't there and he was never able to really capture, you know, the success of that record. And, um, you know, obviously probably his street cred with a lot of rappers was probably hurt by his popularity. Cause I think at that time in rap, it wasn't cool to be popular. You know what I mean? Now it's like, it's cool to be popular in rap. You know what I mean? Like Migos is like, Hey, let's, right. you know, we're going to, we're going to show off our success. We're going to show off our, a lot of money. It seems like back then, even like if you got like mainstream, you, you sort of like lost some of your street cred with like the NWAs of the world. you know what I mean? At that particular time, whether that's not the case by any means now, but you know, you kind of had, I think of, 
of, of two albums that kind of paint the story of rap in 1990. One of them would be, um, you know, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him, like I mentioned, for commercial appeal. And then I think for critical, you know, the best rap album, and I don't often say best, but I'll say it here, uh, you know, Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet um, is is such a killer record and, and an important record um, and and really one of the most politically charged rap albums of all time. Um, it's a lot of tracks. You know, I listen to it start to finish, which I think if you're out there and you haven't heard the record in a while, um, I suggest listening to it start to finish because there are shorter songs, there are interludes, there's instrumentals on it. Um, so I think almost, I treat it almost as like a, this may not be the right way to put it. And Chuck D, if you're listening and I'm totally off base, please let me know. Um, I, I think of it almost as like a concept album to a degree, you know, um, thematically, uh, as well as the structure of the record and how it's, how it's put down and how it's produced as well. They were doing some really cool shit in the studio too with, with, with that album. So, you know, those, that's, that's kind of like the, again, maybe I'm avoiding some nuances of some other albums. There's a lot of other great rap albums from that year, but that, that, those are kind of like the, the, the two sides of the coin, you know, in rap that year for me. Um, I guess if there was a third one, you could say Vanilla Ice just because I think... It's a huge record. You know, yeah, huge. it's a huge record, you know? It's a huge record. Um, different than those two and culturally not as important as those two. I got but both hey, of those states. You can't deny year. a banger, you know? Yeah, yeah never oh, yeah. deny a banger. Um, so yeah, those, MC those Hammer are, are, has been in the news lately, kind of, uh, I don't know, not like a huge controversy, but at the Grammy, uh, the Grammys tribute, you know, 50th anniversary of hip hop they did, uh, Questlove yeah. was in charge of putting all that together and supposedly he begged MC Hammer to open it, to open the show and, uh, MC Hammer Questlove. declined to saying that it was something, you know, he's not down with the fakeness of it all, whatever that means. Uh, uh, that's his prerogative, I guess. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I guess Questlove was, he said that one hurt the most out of all the people they asked hmm. to be a part of it, him saying no. It was cool for thinking of him, you know? I mean, that's good. I've, obviously, I've always, Questlove's yeah. the coolest. Um, so, like, it was, it, it's cool that he, he thought of him. That's a it's probably the, if I if I had a one dude I just want to talk about music with, it's probably that guy. You know what I mean? Anyway, another podcast. Questlove, you've liked a few of our posts. If you're listening, you are welcome anytime on this podcast. <laughs> right? Um, you know, one one other thing before I hand it over to Getz that I I, I think um, Levi had mentioned as well, and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll pose a theory too. Um, you know, you mentioned glam metal, Levi, and uh, I. This might be silly. I mean, I don't like to call it hair metal just because I like a lot of those bands and I think it really just diminishes. Um, I, I think I think it's condescending as musicians. I mean, yes, they had big hair and, you know, you could say things like that. But um, I think I've talked about this on the show before as well. I, I like all those bands. Um, and But it was kind of the last throws of, of that era, you know, the decade change. Sure. Like you still had like two really successful bands from that genre of, of hard rock or glam metal. Um, Warren's Cherry Pie came out in 1990. Yeah. And then um, uh, the Poison record. Um, I'm sorry. It's the one that's got Unskinny Bop on it. Um, shit, I'm drawing a blank on the name at the moment. Uh, it's got Unskinny Bop and nothing, something to believe in on it. Um, oh, Flesh and Blood. Yeah, Flesh and Blood. So those, those were still huge. Um, and then I'd argue the death of that was the last throes of that was uh, Cinderella appearing in Wayne's World in 1991. I think that was finally it. And the next thing you know, here comes the Smells Like Teen Spirit video. Right? So, which being the ultimate nail in the coffin, unfortunately. But yeah, so, you know, those are those are some of my musical observations. I've got a few others. Maybe we can. Well, yeah, the, the we I don't want to hear from Getz. list all the albums. Yeah, yeah. there's. Yeah, want to hear from Getz here. For sure. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's it's hard for my view of 1990 to be like anything but incredibly myopic and, and kind of selfish. Uh, where uh, at a time I was uh, listening to uh, the aforementioned Young Guns uh, soundtrack, uh, White Snake, Bobby Brown, like it was it, it was a little um, uh, without a rudder uh, for me, and I wasn't sure like for you know what what I did like and. Um, and so 
I can't help but like look back at it and think, oh, this is how the music world was shaping up to change my life in 1998, in 1991, and 1992, and like every year after, right? And and so, you know, it was it was the calm before the storm, as you were just alluding to there, Gabe, with you know before Nirvana and before Pearl Jam, and and granted, yeah, Nirvana had released stuff, but sure. by then, but it hadn't reached. You know, Central Illinois yeah. uh, at that time, and, you had and to really, be really cool to be listening to Nirvana yeah. before the Smells Like Teen Spirit video. Yeah, yeah. Let's face it; you were in the Pacific Northwest, likely. Um, right. And like, I wish I was cool enough to have been listening to that, or even like NXS at the time. Like the the X album is is amazing. Like, uh, and um, so like. If, if these year-based episodes teach me anything, it's it's that there are like way more influences out there uh, than I realize, uh, and than I realized certainly at the time, because you're thinking at the time, oh my gosh, like the before times were you know the, the hair metal, and it was something you kind of wanted to distance yourself from, and it takes time to go back and like appreciate that for what it was, um, sure, and and so. You know, and and to, you know, revisit it, especially in preparing for this episode or just over the last 30 years when, like, eventually you kind of, uh, you you snake your way into, you know, something from that era. You know, you realize that, like, nothing comes from nothing and everything comes from something. And uh, and, and to, like, dig into, into the ground and find these roots that were, like, that were right just below the surface is, like, so humbling and enlightening. Um and and so like some of these bands were like so close to what I would eventually dive into in 1992 and 1993, but they were like obscured just enough that they required the slightest amount of digging to discover. And I you know I feel embarrassed that I didn't discover them sooner. And and so like you know you have Neil Young's Ragged Glory. I'm sorry, Neil Young and Crazy Horse's Ragged Glory, which. Um, you know, I wasn't introduced to Neil Young until, you know, the, the uh, VMAs, right, when he came out with Pearl mm-hmm. Jam. And, and and to realize, like, that rag, that masterpiece that is Ragged Glory came out when it did. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's considered to be, you know, on a list, on the lists of, you know, the greatest grunge albums of all time. And that was before, like, that was even a term, you know. It came out before that sure. was even a term, right? And... Uh, and, and, and then, you know, later on in my life, like when I found driving and crying and, you know, they released fly me courageous in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and to recognize that like, oh wow, there was like so much just waiting. It was so close yet so far for me, um, because I was just so focused on, you know, every, anything new that, that Pearl Jam was releasing or Temple of the Dog or Soundgarden and Nirvana, etc. And so, uh, I, I ended up w- when researching these episodes. I I I always love finding the new things that I latch on to, and yeah, I was aware of the Cocteau Twins for sure, but like I didn't know them by anything except radio hits and the name, and that was kind of it. And Heaven or Las Vegas by the Cocteau Twins, released in 1990 is my most listened to album over the last two months. <laughs> like it's not even close. I've listened to that record 10 times. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then to recognize their influence and, uh, on the whole, uh, on, uh, other like dream pop, uh, shoegaze bands like ride, um, or, uh, uh, uh Jesus and Mary chain, uh, you know these other these other bands that I've listened to quite a bit over the last few years, uh, specifically, uh, and 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 then their influence on uh, bands that I've listened to a ton over the last ten years, whether whether it be a Sigur Rós or a Pink Shiny Ultra Blast. Uh, you know, like I said, it's humbling because again, nothing comes from nothing. Like all of these bands that that I really latched onto, more contemporary bands. Like yeah, they were they were going to the Cocteau Twins, you know. Whether it's like Saint Vincent or Teen, you know, I th- I thought Teen had these other influences. I thought Teen was aping Saint Vincent. It turns out Teen is aping Cocteau Twins, and uh, <laughs> it, it's it's really humbling and eye opening to recognize that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Good take, I, man. I was gonna, and again, you know, this is something I would have been. 
cool enough to to listen to right. back then by all means so i was like yeah, yeah more poison yeah, yeah. so well, and you know and, and don't get me wrong i love poison so when right at the beginning of uh jonathan's segment you know it made me think of it it was i mean you know it's cliche it was a simpler time then because you could flip on mtv and you would hear delight then you would hear you know mc hammer then you would hear glam metal then you would hear you know what i mean the the genre then you'd see the hard to handle video or something you know what i mean right like everything like it was such a nice way to hear all the different genres and absorb all the music that was new and that was coming out then. I mean, now with so many choices and so many yeah. ways to consume all of the product, it, it was easier back then. I mean, mm-hmm. and it may have been, you know, granted we were trading like the record companies paying MTV to be like, Hey, play these. But it was almost it was a simpler time, and it was an easier way to digest all of the new music that was coming out. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes, like being prescriptive is better than having a bunch of choices. You know what I mean? It it, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we had MTV Kids today. It's basically they've got a library card for music. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, whatever they want. Um, damn it! And I had to walk to school in the snow anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and and. For the sake of for the sake of time, guys, we'll 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 put a bow on it here in a minute. But like, obviously, there's some there's some other great records, you know, that we we didn't get to. That you know, folks, you can tell us on Facebook or or, or Instagram, other ones that you like. You know, I think I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but like, I I think that um, because maybe all three of us are a little disillusioned with the current state of the band, I don't think you can deny how how much how great Shake Your Money Maker is still. You know, I mean, like. I um, if there's a record I've listened to the most from 1990, it's probably that one. You know, for sure. That yeah. that and to the extreme by Vanilla Ice on cassette. You know, um, <laughs> but yeah, and also I think um, I think there were also some really good metal records that came out that year. Megadeth's Rest in Peace is great. A lot of those songs from mm-hmm. that record, you know, became live staples. Uh, Slayer, uh, Seasons in the Abyss, right? Is is from 1990, I believe. Um, Anthrax, Persistence of Time, which is probably like, I would argue, like the last, one of the last great Anthrax albums. Not that they didn't, you know, fell down the last album before we came back. Not, but, not that I won't defend Sound of White Noise until the day I die. I know, I know, I know you're, I know you're a fan. I know you're a fan. And I am too. It's just, I'm one of those Belladonna purists, you know, when I get it, it comes to I get Anthrax. it. I get it. With all due respect to John Bush, he's, he, he's really good as well. You know, and he had Sinead O'Connor's record that year, you know, as well. Um, it's just, there's... there's A Depeche like Mode said, album that year is excellent. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, like, like we say with a lot of these these field guys, you know, we could be here all night. So we look forward to maybe talking with you on social about some of your favorite records uh, from 1990 and any baseball memories that you have. I will say that you can find us on the Instagram at Rock In Chew. That's in as in Nuno Betancourt strumming an acoustic guitar on the streets of Boston in the wholehearted video. Um, so check us out there and on Twitter at Rock and Chew. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and you can find all of our episodes at rockchew.com, the whole archives. And you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify. So until next time, it was nice walking through 1990 with you and we'll see you again real soon. Have a good night. Peace.